This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the third and final installment of this mini-series based on a session that I chaired at the Society for the Study of Addiction conference in Newcastle a few weeks ago. Previous episodes have discussed MDMA and psilocybin, and in this episode I talked to Professor Celia Morgan from Exeter University about her work with ketamine. If you haven't already listened, I'd recommend going back to the earlier episode about ketamine for some background on the drug, although we talk a little about its effects here as well. So here we go, I hope you enjoy it. I am joined today by Professor Celia Morgan, who is a psychopharmacologist from the University of Exeter. Hi, Celia. Hello. <laughs> so, um, can you just tell us all a bit about sort of what it is that you do down in Exeter? So, the research I do mainly focuses on addiction, um, but also, I guess, predominantly using psychopharmacological compounds to enhance psychological therapies. And in that area, we've been working with some. Uh, illicit substances and psychedelic drugs like ketamine and cannabis. This is the sort of third instalment of um, these podcasts, which are based on this session around uh, the psychedelic renaissance, I think the session's been called. (laughs) Um, And so you mentioned there ketamine, which isn't necessarily a drug that people would think about as being a psychedelic No, it's true. It's not a true psychedelic and it's not a classic psychedelic. So these are drugs that work on the serotonergic system. And I guess ketamine comes from a class of drugs called dissociative anaesthetics. So it was originally uh, developed as an anaesthetic, um, but it does have associated with it quite a lot of perceptual changes and people do get psychedelic-like effects. So things like out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences and uh, strange perceptual changes and visions and illusions so I think that's why it's been in lumped in with the psychedelic renaissance (laughs) because it's a psychoactive substance that has psychedelic like effects. And so how are you using ketamine in your research? Um, So at the moment we're doing a phase 2b clinical trial (laughs) of a drug so that's quite a pain. (laughs) So what what is a phase 2b? So that is a a proof of concept clinical trial of an investigation on medicinal products so that's ketamine in this case so it just means a trial that's got a lot of regulation and monitoring associated with it but the results of it can then directly be used to 
inform the development of a drug as a medicine. So yeah, we're doing a study of that at the moment with ketamine and what we're looking at it is as an adjunct to psychological therapy in patients with alcohol use disorder to see if it can reduce relapse rates. So what are our current treatments for alcohol use disorder like? What if someone's got alcohol use disorder, what tends to what processes do they tend to go through? Well I guess first they would go through detox before we would start any other type of treatments and then there's kind of a range of things available, so relapse prevention medications, things like acamprosite, disulfiram, so antabuse people probably know, um, but those aren't really generally well tolerated and people don't stick to them, they require you to take them quite a lot and some of them have got quite nasty side effects. Um, psychological therapies I guess are the mainstay, so things like motivational interviewing or more recently contingency management, but actually the picture is pretty bleak for alcoholics generally, so we know that relapse rates at one year are around 70% in alcoholics so who've gone through treatment. Yeah, so we do direly need new treatments, and I think that's where the impetus for this trial has come from. <laughs> so what, what led you guys to think, well, maybe ketamine could be useful here? Are there sort of certain things about ketamine or previous sort of research looking at ketamine that led you to think, well, actually, it could be really useful? Um, I guess the impetus for our research came from two areas, really. One is some research that was done in the 80s in Russia by a guy called Evgeny Kropitsky, um, and he gave uh, ketamine infusions. So his standard protocol was to give three ketamine infusions alongside um, group psychotherapy and individual psychotherapy to inpatient detoxified alcoholics and he found these really startling results compared to a control group he found that in people given what he called ketamine psychedelic therapy um, their relapse rates at uh, 12 months were around 20 percent um, compared to 75 percent in the control wow. group so there was a massive reduction in relapse rates I mean this, that study was a kind of preliminary study in that it wasn't controlled it wasn't randomized people got to choose whether they went in a ketamine mm. group or not and there was no placebo involved. So that was one one idea where we thought, well, this is, sounds like a really amazingly effective treatment, but nobody's actually taken this forward. And there needs to be sort of tested in a more controlled yeah, way. Yeah, and potentially we need to do some kind of more decent research on it. And the other, I guess, impetus for it came from the discovery relatively recently. So I guess in 2006 was where the first randomised controlled trial was published of ketamine, showing that it is a kind of rapid-acting um, antidepressant. So that was Carlos Sorati's work that showed that giving ketamine to patients with treatment-resistant depression um, produced a decrease in depressive symptoms that peaks after about a day and then lasts in about 30% of, of people up to a week. So, I mean, this has been hailed as one of the greatest advances in psychiatry in the past 50 years because before that, all antidepressants had this therapeutic lag. So if you know about SSRIs, the standard kind of Prozac antidepressants, that take about two weeks to work. But this drug was effective in treatment-resistant depression. So people who are so depressed they can't get off bed and they haven't responded to any other treatment and was effective almost immediately. Um, so this caused a huge kind of excitement around ketamine. I think it made... It contributed to a climate where ketamine research for mental health disorders and things like addiction became more fundable. Previous to that, Evgeny's work from the 80s, I think people thought was just a bit unusual yeah. and kind of dismissed it. Maybe but, an anomaly or something. Yeah, yeah, but that, with all this work on depression, and then people started to investigate the kind of preclinical basis of those findings. And um, yeah, that sort of created a climate where we could get the funding from the Medical Research Council to do this study. Wow. So that's so because ketamine, although it's a drug of abuse as well, it is 
used as a medicine sort of all over the world. It's on the WHO's list of essential medicines, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So it's massively important in developing countries because as an anaesthetic, although when people have ketamine anaesthesia, they do experience things like these out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, but it's very safe physically, so it doesn't produce respiratory depression, so it doesn't slow your breathing, so you don't need to intubate people. And in countries with limited resources, that's really important, so they can't use the... The anaesthetics that we use here are things like opiates, and it also doesn't slow your heart rate, so it's actually really safe as a medicine. And it's used in other... Now it's being increasingly used in chronic pain. It's obviously quite big in veterinary anaesthesia, which mm-hmm. is how it gets its nickname, the horse tranquilizer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so it's, in a, yeah, it's a really important medicine and widely used. And, yeah, it's not on Schedule 1 at the moment, which means it's a bit easier to work with than some other psychedelic-like compounds. So Schedule 1, is that drugs that are illegal and <coughs> it's seen that there's no medical benefit so you're not allowed to do yeah. research into them and and um yeah so hong china have been campaigning the un to put ketamine on schedule one because they have quite big problems with ketamine abuse um but actually because of its use we were contributing to campaigns to keep it on the essential medicines list and that's been the case yeah so schedule one does limit i guess the research with substances, because only certain hospitals have got Schedule 1 licences, you need to get special permissions with, from the Home Office. So um, that's not the case at the moment with ketamine. So how far through your uh, trial are you? Are you what are you sort of... <laughs> well, how's the experience of running this? Uh, it is, yeah, not entirely pleasant, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy the research, but running a clinical trial is a bureaucratic nightmare and it just is taking longer than we anticipated but so we've randomized 31 patients now which of 96 so we're about third of a way through which is good (laughs) that's actually quite positive (laughs) and we hope to have all the data in by um december next year so fingers crossed we can keep going we're going yeah quite at a pace at the moment so that's good um yeah but no the experience I mean it's really interesting to learn how these things work the regulations involved in clinical trials and the amount of checking and safety monitoring and things so every bit of data that we collect some a monitor comes in and checks it so yeah it's quite different to experimental studies as used to before (laughs) and so what does your program what does your procedure for this study look like do people have therapy while they're intoxicated on ketamine how how does it work no so i guess um to run you through what you would experience as a patient um so you'd come in so first of all we talk to you on the phone for about half an hour just to perform a kind of initial check of your eligibility because we've got quite strict inclusion exclusion criteria and then if you pass that we would invite you in for a screening in the hospital research center so this is running in two places in exeter and london um, to increase recruitment rates. Yeah, so you come in for a screening, you'd have a physical, we take some blood. Again, to check eligibility, you'd have a psychiatric interview, we would collect some data about um, your alcohol use. And then if you looked like you were eligible, then we would fit you with a SCRAM bracelet. So this is a alcohol monitoring oh, bracelet. That so looks a, a bit like a tag. Lindsay <laughs> yeah. Lohan bracelet. Yeah, exactly. The Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We sometimes send, depending on what the participant likes, a picture of Lindsay Lohan wearing <laughs> the bracelet to them to give them an idea. Yeah, they're not the most fetching of things. So you wear that round your ankle? Is that yeah, right? it yeah. goes with, I don't know why they call it a bracelet, but it's usually an anklet. And also, obviously, you can see that they come from coronal justice, because often our patients are like, couldn't they make this smaller? Yeah, just a little <laughs> less like cumbersome. Yeah, yeah, it actually looks like you're on a tag. So we were originally going to ask people to wear it for the whole duration of the study, but it's just six months, but... 
that was putting off too many people, so now they wear it for active treatment. Mm-hmm. And that, it measures through your skin, Yeah. Your whether you've drunk alcohol? Yeah, so it measures trans- in your sweat, so about 1% of alcohol that you consume is excreted in your sweat, so they've kind of modelled what the alcohol excretion curves look like. So it, it is a kind of every half an hour it takes a reading, so we have a, a more objective measure of your alcohol use. Mm-hmm. Um, and is this... Is this to check whether people have stopped drinking or is it just to get a, an accurate idea of how much they're drinking? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's it's in terms of the how much it's not particularly accurate, but it, get, it get, definitely gives us a good indication of whether or not they've drunk that day, which is basically our outcome data, um, which we can then triangulate with their diaries and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, Also, people seem to, but by the end of the wearing it for the active treatment, people actually sometimes want to keep it on because they think it acts as a good kind of abstinence sobriety reminder. It sort of buzzes every half an hour and people <laughs> say, although that's, that sounds quite annoying, but actually it's quite good to cut the reminder of their intention mm. to remain sober. Um, but yeah, so we fit them with a bracelet, they go away and then we put them in for their baseline visit. Um, so they would come in then, they would have either the psychological therapy or um, education about alcohol. So that's our control condition for the therapy, just to match with the, for the amount of time that you spend with the person, but it's got no kind of psychological components. Um, and then they would have their infusion straight after that. And then they come back 24 hours later and have another session of psychological therapy or education. And we do some questionnaires and cognitive tasks. And that happens for three consecutive weeks where they have these kind of two sessions of psychological therapy. And on the fourth week, they have a final session of therapy or education. And then they come back three months after that for a follow-up and six months after that. And then they've completed the study. So... Yeah, that's kind of their experience going through it, I think. So if they're in the ketamine condition, how many... Do they get ketamine at every session, then? They have three infusions of ketamine, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, so they come in six times, and three of those times they get... Yeah, so seven times... So they come in seven times in the active treatment phase, and three of those times they get a ketamine infusion. Right, Yeah. yeah. So Is there... There's, like, four different possible conditions that you could be in. There's... The therapy, ketamine, ketamine yeah. education, ketamine, therapy, placebo, education, placebo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's so we can look at, hopefully, across arms, we can look at the effect of ketamine and placebo independently. And then we can also look at the interaction with therapy. Because interestingly, even in the depression research, which there's quite a lot of now, nobody's looked at whether ketamine interacts with psychological therapy. And some of the way that the preclinical animal work suggests it works in the brain, we think it might be able to enhance learning from psychological therapy, so it might actually have a synergistic effect. So I think that's going to be really interesting, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, no, it sounds absolutely fascinating, but I can see why it's such a mammoth piece of work to do. (laughs) So for a project this size, how many people would work on something like that? Um, So Um, we have got, well, so there's two postdocs on each site, and then there's two... Research assistants, they work on it all the time, yeah. or they're part time. But then also, there's a huge team of anaesthetists who give the infusions of the drug, and then the doctors that do the screening, the nurses, because we run it both in the clinical research facilities in Exeter and London. So, yeah, there's a, a big team of people involved, mm. maybe like 30 or so, and then the other collaborators. So. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Because yeah. I think probably fun. lots of people listening to this won't have, a, won't have any experience of. Well, research at all potentially, but certainly running something sort of on this scale, and it yeah. is, it's yeah, quite a quite an undertaking. Yeah, and no, it's very different to more experimental research. But as a researcher, it's really enjoyable because you feel like you're really at the forefront of maybe or maybe not <laughs> this will choose, turn out to be an effective treatment. 
which is really exciting. It's just the length of time it takes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you've got to keep yourself motivated. Yeah, so, so sort of on that point, one, once this is done and you've got your results and yeah. assuming that it's sort of like the results kind of, kind of do what you expect them to do, what would then be the next step? The next step then is what's called a phase three clinical trial. That's where you broaden it out to a wider number of patients. So we'd have less strict inclusion criteria, probably trying it in different patient groups and maybe looking at um, different, a wider number of sites where you're looking at then, rather than we've got, you know, around 100 patients, you're looking at thousands, Mm -hmm. potentially. Um, And those things typically are mainly funded by pharmaceutical companies because of the cost, but... Things like the National Institute for Health Research do fund studies like that. So I guess that would be our port of call, <laughs> first off. And then in terms of sort of the theory, what what is it, do you think, or are there any theories about why, like what is it about ketamine that means it might be useful in this situation? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, we're not entirely sure, and it's something we're looking at in this study. So we're taking blood markers and looking at things like cognitive function and symptoms. But I guess we've got an idea of... Some ways that might work. So one, as, as I was mentioning about the depression research, where ketamine's been shown to be an antidepressant. So in people with alcohol use disorder, when you detoxify, depressive symptoms are really rife. Like they're really common in everyone. And um, they are a predictor of relapse. So maybe by targeting people after detox, where these depressive symptoms are high with an antidepressant drug that acts really rapidly, then we can just get people through what's a particularly risky window in the weeks and months following detox. Mm. Um, So that's one way we think it might work. On a more kind of basic neurological level, the animal literature suggests that ketamine increases the birth of new neurons in the the bit of the brain called the hippocampus, which is like your memory area, um, in a process called neurogenesis. So we don't know, we know this from rat evidence, we don't know it, from humans directly, because you'd have to cut people's heads yeah, off. <laughs> that is frowned upon. <laughs> um, but we do know that um, a correlate of that, brain, what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, is increased in people following ketamine. And also this seems, from the animal literature at least, to be crucial to the antidepressant effect. So that's one way that ketamine might work. We also know in alcoholism that neurogenesis, this process, is reduced, so that maybe by stimulating that by a cup, this increases your ability to learn new things, and maybe that... The kind of psychological correlate of that could be getting out of this uh, rut that people get in when they when they have addiction. Um, and similarly, there's a process called synaptogenesis, very similar to neurogenesis. That's the growth of new synapses, so connections between your brain cells in the prefrontal cortex. And there's some work um, published in Science that showed that um, ketamine induces this, and that this is again crucial for its antidepressant effect. Um, and also. Um, another study is actually given has sort of got alcohol preferring rats so like alcoholic rats and looked at ethanol consumption and if you give rats ketamine it reduces their ethanol consumption if they're alcoholic rats but if you give a drug that blocks synaptogenesis at the same time as the ketamine then you block this this effect so it doesn't make ketamine reduce their drinking so basically by blocking synaptogenesis you um, mean that ketamine isn't effective in these alcoholic rats so we think that that might be another way on a kind of neurological level um, and also, maybe, as I mentioned before, potentially by enhancing the uptake of psychological therapies. So these kind of neuronal processes that are going on, the correlates of them are kind of improved cognitive function and ability to learn new things. And that's obviously very useful in psychological therapy. But on a kind of more uh, subjective effects level, these 
drugs change your perceptions and that gives you a new perspective on your life and in psychological therapy we're often asking people to take new perspectives on their life think about things more objectively so yeah I think from that might be another way in which they work and then there's some evidence that the mystical experiences that people experience from ketamine might um, have an impact on uh, their effects in alcoholism. So Evgeny Kapitsky's work found the subjective effects of ketamine seem to be related to abstinence, but more in the kind of negative effects, so the amount of fear and anxiety and guilt oh, that people felt when they were on the ketamine, mm. and that was related to how effective it was. But there's also some other work that, from the depression side that seems to suggest subjective effects aren't related to the antidepressant effects. And also that drugs that are metabolites of ketamine, so when ketamine's broken down, they're kind of the byproduct, that these um, don't, that don't have the psychedelic-like effects, but they still are antidepressants. So I think the jury's out on the mystical aspect, but um, that's something we hope to look at in our research as yeah. well. But that, things like that are so hard to research because it's all yeah. so kind of subjective and yeah, yeah 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 and you're really constrained to kind of rating scales and then getting people to introspect about drug experiences when the drugs impair the me- your memory is quite <laughs> difficult um so yeah um yeah it's all fun <laughs> <laughs> i guess one thing that maybe people struggle to get their head around is that there is abuse potential with ketamine. So to try and treat addiction with a drug that some people become addi- addicted to, do you find that people sort of have these kind of worries about this sort of research? Yeah, and I think, I mean, to some extent they're warranted. I've done a lot of research on ketamine abuse and addiction as well before going into this. So I think there are a subset of people who do have real struggles with ketamine and will take it every day. But I think they're very, I mean... It seems like the numbers of ketamine users are declining at the moment in the UK and they seem to be restricted to a subset of people. And what we try, we, as part of our inclusion criteria, we exclude people who've got any other comorbid substance misuse problems. So ketamine is also quite a hard drug to source if you're not in those circles. So we think actually to become a ketamine user would be quite difficult for a majority of people who've never used any other drugs. So, I mean, that's somewhat reassuring. But I guess it's something we just have to monitor um, in terms of the depression literature, so there there haven't been many case reports of ketamine dependence, and there people have been giving it in repeated doses, so mm. it's quite interesting. I think there's one case report so far. I mean, maybe more will emerge, because what's happened with the ketamine depression world is that a lot of kind of off-license, off-label prescribing has sprung up in the US, so there's hundreds of ketamine clinics have now opened on the back of maybe not like really solid scientific evidence. So without any phase three clinical trials and prescribing ketamine in ways that may be slightly unethical. So were they saying, like, have five infusions and receive your sixth one free? Oh, wow. And then, but even in that climate, there don't seem to be lots of people developing ketamine dependence. So maybe, again, it's like how, you know, one of those setting effects about how you take the drug and what you take it for, whether it becomes dependence for Yeah, that, I was going to, going to add that, that it's something that comes up in almost every single one of these podcast episodes is about the importance of set and setting and being given a drug in a sort of very much clinical environment as part of a therapy that's it's very much a sort of a prescription and obviously like people like we're seeing at the moment with opioids that it is possible for prescription medicines to be abused Mm. but it's a sort of a different kind of 
way of taking it for, for, for ketamine, certainly. Yeah, compared absolutely, to yeah. The people and who do abuse it. No, and I think, and hopefully that will be the beneficial thing as well. And this is what we emphasize to our patients, that we think it works alongside the therapy. Like, it's not a standalone thing. So yeah. this is going to have the long-term effects, and it's going to be a short-term treatment. It's not something you have to be on forever. So we just want to use these, so we just three infusions to kind of enhance the effectiveness of the psychological therapy. So hopefully that's another thing when we kind of describe it as a package rather than a, just the ketamine is making you better. <laughs> should be a disincentive to go and try and source it themselves. I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. So thank you so much to Professor Celia Morgan for taking time out to talk to us today. And thanks for the interview, Susie. <laughs> and there we go. Now, I'm afraid to report that at the moment I have no other episodes recorded. However, in the new year, I'll be recording a live podcast with Dr. Carl Roberts, who is the guest on the Cognitive Enhancers podcast, and some of the psychology students at the University of Liverpool. And I have a few more episodes planned that I'll record as soon as I can, hopefully with Pip. And in the new year, there will be some exciting news as well. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, thank you all for listening, downloading, rating us on iTunes, chatting to me on Twitter and Facebook, emailing me your comments, thoughts, suggestions, and generally for being ace. Speak to you soon. You've been listening to Say Why to Drugs with me, Dr Susie Gage. The music was by Jim Murray. The artwork was by at my name is Ad. Say Why to Drugs would not have been possible without the generous support of I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here, the Medical Research Council, and Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.